This episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast is presented by Sling. Watch the CONCACAF Gold Cup in June and July with Sling TV with the best teams competing against the United States to win the competition. Watch those games on Sling TV. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. My name is Christopher Harris. I'm joined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnair. Uh, for those listeners who haven't had a chance to hear this podcast before, uh, we usually do a deep dive into television, streaming, uh, ways to watch the games, etc. But today we've got a big topic to cover, and that is talking about whether or not uh, the US Open Cup is being undermined by Major League Soccer. But before we get to that, Kartik, uh, one of the big news items that came out from the last uh, last time we, since we've done this podcast is uh, Martin Tyler, um, the most famous English language soccer commentator in the world, uh, is leaving Sky Sports after 33 years. Uh, what's your thoughts on that news? Yeah, I, I was very sad about it. Uh, and actually, uh, it broke Saturday morning, early morning our time in the United States uh, last week. And... Uh, I, I had a number of people telling me, oh, well, this one's interested, that one's interested. As it turns out, uh, Peter Drury has been elevated, and, and uh, maybe this creates, and this is probably a topic for another another show, Chris, a more symbiotic relationship potentially between NBC and Sky, who are owned by the same parent company. Uh, but in terms of Tyler, it's very sad. He is the voice of English football for so many of us, right? He is the 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 ultimate voice, not, not to take anything away from any other commentators, particularly Peter Drury, who at this point I think is uh, the top dog, right? But um, historically, it's Tyler. He has other anecdotes and insights into the games uh, that uh, I've appreciated through the years. And in, in fact, uh, I'm going to miss uh, the weekly uh, podcast I, I, I watch with him and Gary Neville. I, I assume maybe Peter Drury hosts that now or they go in, in, in a different direction, maybe with a different presenter asking Gary Neville questions. But Tyler's um, insight into the game is so deep. And this is something we've seen, I think, from commentators recently commentators used to be very kind of static and just call the matches right traditionally but as we've gotten into this era we've had commentators who've been able to give more uh, analysis and 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 set up whoever their co-commentator is and and i think another great example of this is ian dark who was one of the uh uh, they, they used to have the Sky Big Four. Remember when the Premier League started and Tyler and Dark were two of those big four. And uh, Dark now can almost be a co-commentator along with being a commentator, right? And, and we see him uh, regularly on ESPN FC providing insight and analysis. And, and Martin Tyler has done that as well. So I think it's a big miss. I think uh, um, it's something that um, will take some adjusting, honestly, not hearing him. Uh, because th- there was just this this view that if Martin Tyler called a match, it was a big match. It was an occasion. And that's the way so many of us felt. Um, and I know that's the case w- w- with other sports too, American sports. I know in American sports, if there's a particular commentator that calls, uh, calls a game, uh, you think it's a big game. I think with the NBA, that would be Mike Breen. Uh, with uh, NFL, I-, I don't know who it is, but at one time, way back when, when I was a kid, it was Pat Summerall. Um, Martin Tyler has that same relationship with English football, where if he's calling a match, you know it's a big occasion. So it's going to take some adjustment. Um, and even recently, Chris, when, when uh, we would get the, uh, the, the Monday night broadcasts in the United States uh, on NBC uh, that, uh, or USA Network that, uh, that Martin Tyler was calling, it, was still some, it felt special, even if it was a, a match between two teams in the bottom half of the table, because he was calling the match. Yeah, so there's a few things here. First of all, um, 33 years, that's how long uh, Martin Tyler has been at Sky Sports, and uh, he's not retiring. So he is leaving Sky Sports. I mean, Sky Sports are making a lot of changes internally. I think Jeff Shreves' his job is on the line. There's a bunch of changes that uh, people will be moving out, probably some cost-cutting there. But Martin Tyler um, was a broadcaster before Sky Sports uh, started. He's actually been commentating for, for, I think, five decades since the 1980s. Uh, We've interviewed him many times. A really, really humble, gentle guy, really nice guy, like a really uh, no ego at all, um, a scholar of the game. I think it would be argued that uh, he's not as good now as he was in his prime 
and and I think that's fair. I mean, he's uh, seventy seven, so you mean it's you mean he's still a good commentator, and and he still has the voice. The voice has changed uh, over each generation. You mean not as uh, I mean not just <laughs> I think it happens to everyone, right? In terms of uh, voices change, sound a little bit different. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens if he does go someplace else. I mean, there's an opportunity, whether it's doing just um, maybe FIFA tournaments or world feeds or, I mean, this, uh, it's up to him really in terms of if he wants to go ahead and, and continue uh, with a different broadcaster. I don't think he's going to retire personally. Um, some other things with this too is when the news did break that uh, Peter Drury uh, was taking the job at Sky Sports, I got so many texts and uh, emails and, and tweets like, oh, so sad to see Peter Drury leaving NBC Sports. Well, uh, he will continue at NBC Sports as their lead commentator. At Sky Sports, he's going to be doing roughly about one game a week. So it's not going to be that he's going to be doing several a week. So he's still going to be probably doing more for NBC Sports, uh, maybe a couple of games on a weekend and then maybe maybe a Monday game for Sky Sports or uh, or vice versa. Maybe you'll do the Monday one for NBC Sports and the Sunday one for Sky. But overall, um, yeah, this is a big change for soccer fans. This is the voice, Kartik, for you and I, right? This is the voice of English soccer um, before there was the Premier League. This is this is the voice, the most famous voice that we we think of when we think that it's the first voice we think of when we think of English soccer, um, watching it on television uh, or listening it to uh, on the radio. So, yeah, big, big changes there at Sky Sports. One more thing, Kartik, I just thought of too, is you mentioned about um, kind of the um, Comcast owning Sky Sports and own, owning NBC and the symbiotic relationship between the two. Um, word out on the street is that Comcast is looking to try to sell Sky so um, so that ownership over Sky Sports by Comcast could be coming to an end in the next six months to 12 months. So so keep an eye out for that. <clears throat> All right, Kartik. So let's, let's turn to our, our topic of the week uh, on this podcast. And uh, that is U.S. Open Cup um, being <clears throat> undermined by Major League Soccer. And uh, let's start off by, I mean, we, we had a podcast a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, talking about Don Garber's comments about uh, the U.S. Open Cup uh, when he had a discussion with U.S. Soccer, the U.S. Soccer Federation at one of their, I think it was the, uh, one of their boards, the board meetings um, that was open um, to, to even members of U.S. Soccer from around the country. And, and those were publicized where it was a very uh, little bit kind of demeaning tone that Don, Don Garber had uh, derogatory towards uh, U.S. Open Cup and uh, basically kind of saying that uh, he wasn't really happy with the U.S. Open Cup. And I mean, it needs to improve and the stadiums aren't that good, etc. Well, following up on that, um, this this week, I believe it was, um, the, the MLS uh, Players Association, so their union, the Players Union, um, their representative, the head of that union, had some comments also to share about the U.S. Open Cup. So this is uh, this is quotes from um, Bob Foos about what he said about the U.S. Open, Open Cup. He says, "I think our players' workload is going to be increasing to go is going to be an increasing issue moving forward, and certainly something we think that will be a big issue in the next round of negotiations." I think they're, in certain circumstances, playing too many games, and I think that's only going to increase as time goes on. I know the league has worked a lot with the Federation and tried to be respectful of what they're trying to do, but I can tell you that the U.S. Open Cup is certainly not something that our players are looking forward to. You know, something's got to give on player workload all over the world, and we are no different here. The calendar has gotten very congested, and we're, as an, as an industry, going to have to make some choices. We haven't taken a formal uh, MLSPA position on the U.S. Open Cup. I will say my personal opinion is that it's not at the level that our players should be playing at. At this point, the venues aren't there. The facilities aren't there. The structure of the tournament 
isn't contributing to making MLS a better league. And I think it's something that might be uh, that, that ought to be pondered. Now, Kartik, before I get your take on, on those quotes, if if somebody had told me, uh, give me that quote and said, OK, who said this without me knowing that it was Bob Foose from um, MLS uh, Players Association, I would have said Don Garber. It sounds like the words are directly out of Don Garber's mouth. It sounds like something that Don Garber would say. And oftentimes the Players Association usually is, you mean, this is the friction between the, the union and their, you mean, their owners, basically, or, or, or the actual league itself. Uh, this sounds like Don Garber. The, the other thing about this, too, is that um, I don't think they play too many games. I mean, if you're the, the, the current system that MLS has for a lot of the teams, the end of the season is October uh, if, they're, if they don't make the playoffs. And then the season starts up again in, like, what, late February, uh, early March. That's, that's a long break. And yes, there's international games in between sometimes, but that's a long, long break. So for them to complain about workers, players' workloads in the U.S., I think that's going a little bit too far compared to uh, other countries. But anyway, that's that's my initial kind of my first impressions when I, when I read those quotes uh, earlier this week. What about you, Kartik? What's what's your stance on this one? First of all, um, Foos and the MLS Players Association don't necessarily have the level of adversarial relationship with management that maybe it appears on the outside. And, I, and there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. I don't want to get too deep into it today. Uh, I, I don't want to analyze the MLSPA beyond this quote. Uh, but I, I, I will say briefly that there, is, uh, there are agency considerations. Uh, there's a lot of cross-relationships uh, um, cross between the people who, 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 who run the union and the people who run the league and the people who run U.S. soccer. So, so con- um, con- conflicts of interest? Yeah, or, or, or w- whether they're conflicts of interest or they're just, okay, uh, we're going to have like these kind of minor fights, but we're always going to come back together. We're never actually going to strike. We're never actually going to have uh, a CBA that radically changes things, that forces MLS to make massive changes. Uh, it, it, everything is going to be very slow and incremental. Um, and, so, so and let me, go yeah, and, and, and let me just chime in there. Just to say the last two CBAs, I thought that the players' union kind of crumbled. That yes. they didn't stand up, they should have fought for for more, and they were pretty, pretty, pretty weak in terms of what they did, uh, in terms of the opposition to to what the MLS was proposing. But uh, absolutely, that's exactly right, Chris. You're right on it on on that. That's exactly what I'm I'm trying to say. You said it in a much more elegant and <laughs> succinct way than I did. Um, so this effort to undermine Open Cup uh, seems to have begun when uh, MLS lost the rights to market the Open Cup along with their rights to market other U.S. soccer properties. The Open Cup for the last several seasons or the years it was contested, right, there was a break because of COVID, uh, had been on ESPN+, Plus, which was also showing MLS Live at the same time. And now we have a situation where the Open Cup is being primarily carried by CBS, which is a network which has no, uh, which shows no MLS matches, right? The only times they show MLS teams are in the Open Cup. And uh, the Open Cup has been able to move on from its uh, locked-in relationship with Soccer United Marketing and MLS and uh, get itself into on a platform, which I think is probably more accessible than ESPN Plus was. Uh, So I think that's driving some of it. This idea about stadiums and grounds and uh, the sort of places they play. uh, Maybe MLS could have made that case 10 years ago because at one time it was a requirement. If you were an MLS club, you had to build a soccer-specific stadium. If you wanted to enter the league, you had to have a plan to build a soccer-specific stadium. Well, now we have a bunch of MLS teams playing in NFL stadiums. We have a team in San Diego that's going to enter next season uh, uh, – ground sharing with a college football team uh, when, in fact, uh, you have a USL club and, and, and NISA club in town that have been able to find soccer stadiums uh, to play in. And then you have a, a situation where, um, for now, nine seasons, New York City FC has played at Yankee Stadium. So I, I think it's really rich for uh, anyone associated with Major League Soccer to talk about conditions of grounds. And uh, uh, Garber talked about the optics of some of the places that uh, that U.S. Open Cup 
Cup games were being played in lower division venues, which are sometimes high school football stadiums and look terrible. I, I, I'm the first to admit that, but you have to remember the budget uh, for these lower division teams, the sort of struggles they have in business, and in some cases are small soccer-specific stadiums. Look at the Pittsburgh Riverhounds, who made a run to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open Cup uh, this year. They play in a very small soccer-specific venue at Highmark Stadium on uh, one of the, the three rivers in in uh, in uh, uh, Pittsburgh, I think it's the Allegheny, uh, but they they have a beautiful soccer-specific stadium that's very small but very uh, purpose-driven, unlike some of these MLS stadiums. So um, I, I think that there is also uh, the desire for MLS to promote its own property, which is the League's Cup, which uh, has been expanded this year. Uh, ironically, to coincide with the new TV deal, not maybe not ironically, it is to coincide with the new MLS TV deal. So all of this is is an agenda-driven play by M- uh, MLS to undermine the Open Cup, which is the um, the, the the oldest competition. Uh, in the United States, which is like our version of the FA Cup or Copa del Rey or Copa Italia. And the last point I'll make here is if uh, MLS wants to leave the Open Cup, there is no way CONCACAF can go along with taking the spot, the Champions League spot, away from the Open Cup uh, and giving it to some other competition that MLS is in. Because this is the one access point uh, that uh, teams from USL, NISA, NPSL, whatever other leagues have, in theory, to, uh, to access continental competition and then uh, the expanded World Club Cup, right? If you take that away from them, you're making... Um, an already closed system, completely closed in this country. So I would urge CONCACAF, if MLS's uh, uh, rumbling is, is actually a fire and they, and they exit the Open Cup, that CONCACAF spot has to stay with the Open Cup. Do you think that that's possible? Do you think that's what they're intending to do based on Don Garber's comments and now uh, Bob Foose's comments from the Players Association that they're putting down, basically kind of uh, setting the stage for uh, MLS leaving the U.S. Open Cup completely? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think the other option is that they might be saying, hey, uh, we don't uh, we don't want to uh, uh, play uh, uh, away games in this competition or that we want to go back to a situation where we have an MLS qualifying tournament where, uh, ML- remember, uh, until about 2010 or 2011, the MLS, not all their teams qualified for Open Cup. They had their own qualifying tournament. And they would play in, whereas every USL team and then when NASL became uh, a a separate league, every NASL team qualified. Uh, So maybe they want that again, uh, which doesn't really reduce the number of games. It just creates uh, these kind of uh, matches where they control the venues and they control uh, the they control uh, revenue, etc. Or maybe they're saying, uh, hey, we uh, we want every match played in an MLS venue. We want to be able to control the ticket revenue and the concessions revenue and the parking revenue from every match. Uh, This is already a situation where I've said this before, um, and it's gotten some people on the lower division side angry. Open Cup is a loss leader for a lot of lower division teams. It's almost cost prohibitive in many cases to keep advancing in the tournament. because the costs increase, your travel budget increases, it's midweek games, oftentimes you're renting facilities, you have have game day staff, Uh, lower division teams are more dependent on temporary game day staff than MLS teams, where you hire people just for game days. So all of these costs then add up when you advance deeper in Open Cup. But why do we love it? We love it because of the competition. We love it because of the open nature of it. That's why it's called Open Cup. Uh, And the accessibility to get uh, uh, to that next level, to be aspirational. That's why this cup competition and any competition is great. And so it's already cost prohibitive for lower division teams. Maybe MLS teams want, want to stay in. Maybe MLS wants to stay in, but make it even more cost prohibitive for lower division teams to where they have to play every match away from home, where their travel budgets increase, where it becomes just too much of a nuisance for the lower division teams that MLS teams don't have to be concerned about cup sets. Because we saw this year, two USL teams reach the quarterfinals. We saw last year a USL team make the finals. And I think these are all kind of optical things MLS doesn't want. They don't want uh, – their aspiration now is to be one of the top or 
their claimed aspirations to be the top league in the world or top five league in the world. And uh, they have these cup matches where they're losing to USL teams pretty regularly. Well, that's no different than in, in Europe, right? We see all the time, the French Cup in particular, we see a lot of upsets in that competition, right? Where Le- yep. uh, League Du and, and, and third division teams are, are beating top division teams. And the FA Cup in, in England and League Cup in England, constant upsets. Uh, we, we, we've, we've seen Bayern struggle in the German Cup. So that's what football is like in cup competitions all over the globe. But MLS seems less secure with that reality um, where they're losing quite often. Their teams are losing quite often to USL teams. They seem to be more insecure about that than the leagues in Europe or in South America are when their top division teams lose to lower division teams. And in the last few years, I mean, I mean, U.S. Open Cup has always been uh, exciting. I mean, I mean, some some years have been better than others. Others in, in terms of, uh, you mean, how, how competitive it is in terms of USL clubs or lower league clubs uh, playing against the the MLS teams, um, and also a lot of it's depended on television coverage over the years. I mean, sometimes it's been spotty. It's been it's been bounced around so many different places. But um, the other thing, part of this too, Kartik, I think is yes. Yeah, uh, MLS teams don't want to lose to USL teams, but it almost feels like MLS doesn't even want to even be uh, in the same sentence as USL. They're a direct competition, right? Both of them are going for both uh, going for different uh, expansion cities uh, throughout the US. Um, there's a def- certainly animosity. There's certain, certainly c- competitiveness between the two organizations. And MLS doesn't even want to, it seems to be even play against any teams from USL. Uh, so it seems. Now, the, the, the whole thing about uh, Foos and uh, players playing too many games. I'm, yes, I mean, so sometimes with the US Open Cup, what it means is playing midweek games. And the way that the US Open Cup is structured is, is it's regional, right, in, in the early stages so that uh, it does limit travel uh, to a certain extent, which I think is smart. But but you look at Major League Soccer, and sometimes you have teams that have a couple of weeks off with no games. Like like for one example here, I'm just looking into Miami. Into Miami's last game that they played was two weeks ago. Now they play this weekend. They play Saturday against uh, I think Philadelphia. But they've had a two week break, uh, no games at all. So that. In terms of the schedule, it's not always. I mean, typical MLS schedule. And, and is they're a team that's seven, still alive in the Open Cup, right? They're a team that's uh, right in the semifinals. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing. Like, typically, an MLS schedule is you play every. Uh, now it's you play every Saturday, right? So it's seven days. So putting it in a midweek game, uh, oftentimes in a regional area of the country that they're that that MLS team is from, I don't think is such a overplaying the players, but. I know you might have a different take on this, Kartik, but what's your thoughts on, on Fuse's comments about uh, playing too many games? Oh, well, I, I think um, that player welfare issues are a real issue around the world and playing too many games. But the reality of this is the U.S. Open Cup adds a handful of games for MLS teams. They enter, depending on the team, in the third round or the fourth round of the competition. So if you qualify for uh, uh, North American for a CONCACAF competition – uh, like uh, Orlando City did, LAFC, you don't enter the U.S. Open Cup till the fourth round. And in the case of those clubs, they have to win three games, two games, sorry, two two games or three games to get to the semifinals. I mean, it, it's not, it, it's almost like when you look at fixture congestion in England, there's a lot of talk about eliminating the League Cup, but the League Cup for those top teams only adds a few few more matches. And actually for all of MLS, in the case of uh, U.S. Open Cup, it only adds a few more matches earlier in the season. U.S. soccer has done a better job the last two seasons uh, of spreading out the Open Cup calendar. So I used to get annoyed by it, even working at the lower division level, that we would play an Open Cup game then a league game, then another Open Cup game if we won, uh, then you know a league game at the weekend, then another Open Cup game. Now the calendar is much more spread out. You've got uh, maybe an Open Cup match and then a couple league matches and another Open Cup match and then a couple league matches, sort of the way the, the FA Cup uh, is structured uh, in, in England. So uh, in terms of the calendar, uh, the, the, the issue is it's midweek games. I get that, and, and that's something that's uh, uh, of concern. But MLS doesn't seem to ever want to give up weekends. And 
uh, nor does USL for that matter. Here's another point. Don Garber doesn't say things without a strategic motive in mind. Maybe he and now Foos reinforcing it are trying to put U.S. soccer on notice that they want um, they want changes to the tournament beyond what we're, what we're talking about. And, and we, we can speculate on that. Or it could be a situation where MLS is, is uh, uh, predicating a, an exit. Uh, so are, do they play too many games? No, but I guess once you add the League's Cup into the equation, then we're beginning to get to a position where they may be playing too many games. The fixture congestion for top players might be like it is in Europe, but that's their fault, right? They've created this tournament, the League's Cup. That's not an existing tournament that uh, they have an obligation to play. It's a manufactured tournament. I'm a supporter of the tournament. I've actually gotten a lot of criticism for being more upbeat and optimistic about the idea than, uh, than many others have been. But, Chris, I, I didn't want the tournament to be at the, at the detriment of the U.S. Open Cup. And if it's an either-or thing, I'd like League's Cup to go away. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the things that Bob Foos and Don Garber have said are really smokescreens. I, I don't think that they're that the issues that they're bringing up are really the issues that are um, our concerns here. So when Foos says that uh, our players are, are not really uh, looking forward to playing the U.S. Open Cup, it's not competition they're looking forward to playing. When Garber says oh, the stadiums are not up to standards. I think these things are really excuses. I, I don't think those are the, the real reasons that uh, they're creating a fuss about uh, the U.S. Open Cup. I think it's it's about control. I think it's about uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation being com- in complete control of this uh, this comp- competition, and it's something that MLS likes to have control of everything, right? MLS likes yep. to make sure that they're making money off every single thing that they do. And they look at this as something like, oh, you mean this is not something that's uh, uh, going to be making us tons of money? We don't probably we can't uh, we can't sell the the actual uh, rights to these games that's owned by U.S. Open Cup. Uh, why are we even doing this? Because we're not making money out of that. Um, and probably the Players Association, Bob Foos, probably going along with that, being such a weak Players Association, kind of saying like, oh right, yeah, Garber must be right, whatever. But. Um, it could be too that MLS is probably thinking like, "Hey, we could do a much better job of running this competition, right? We c- it should put us in charge of it. So put Soccer United Marketing back in charge of this. We can go ahead and sell it better. We can structure it better. We can make sure, like you said, maybe the suggestion of only playing at MLS stadiums and making it look attractive, and maybe removing some of the earlier rounds or maybe less teams involved, which would." hugely uh, impact uh, lower division soccer in the U.S. in terms of opportunities for lower league teams to go all the way. Um, but to me, what what makes the U.S. Open Cup exciting is, is the same thing that makes the FA Cup exciting, is when you see the small stadiums and see those, you mean, um, top flight professional players having to play uh, on a smaller pitch or... Uh, you mean basically in a smaller stadium with um, you mean less facilities, etc. But is is those David versus Goliath games? That's what's most exciting about those competitions. We, in the FA Cup, we love nothing more than to see you mean the heavyweights get knocked out by a a non-league team or or a you mean a, a third division team or second division, etc. So um, I think it's more about control. I think it's more about MLS saying like, hey. We're just going to whine about this. We're going to like complain about this. Yeah, U.S. soccer is not doing a good job. Yeah, you mean you mean just complain um, and to see what they can get out of it. So whether it's and and that's the other thing too is, is U.S. soccer. You don't hear U.S. soccer complaining, Kartik. I, I I hardly ever hear U.S. soccer complaining about Major League Soccer criticizing them or criticizing Foos and coming back and saying like, hey, you know what? The, the things that Foos mentions. Here's the reasons why he's wrong. Or here's the reasons why uh, we believe that U.S. Open Cup should be uh, keep on going and and be as successful as it is. And, and in terms of uh, people watching it, these games and standing up for the U.S. Open Cup, I never hear the U.S. Op- U.S. Soccer Federation pushing back. All I hear is MLS and uh, M- and the Players Union complaining. 
Yeah, that that, that uh, could actually go to an issue that uh, I've discussed heavily in the last week with the, the coaching thing with U.S. soccer, where the board is very inexperienced at U.S. soccer. The uh, the president is very inex- inexperienced. J.T. Baston is a new secretary general. They don't have uh, the sort of long-termers, not just not having Sunil Gulati and Dan Flynn, which I think are a huge deal, but then the board itself is very young and is filled with kind of former – uh, players now, there are three former U.S. women's national team players on the board. Well, actually four if you include the president, Cindy Cohn. Four former U.S. women's national team players who are on the board who are probably reluctant to criticize MLS and, and really may be less invested in the Open Cup than than, uh, than they should be. So there hasn't been the kind of pushback that we would hope for or expect from U.S. soccer. I do have to say operationally, U.S. soccer made a major change a year ago in the people they had running the Open Cup, and it's improved as a result. And so I, I at one time, thought maybe um, – I hate to admit this, given the context of this discussion – I thought maybe, you know, some should actually operate from an operation standpoint, not just a, a media rights standpoint. Maybe Soccer United Marketing should operate the U.S. Open Cup and U.S. soccer should take a step back. I was thinking this about five years ago. Uh, now I, I, I think U, U.S. soccer has improved their actual in-house staff in Chicago that run uh, the Open Cup with, with, with Douglas Applegate and others uh, t- stepping up and really, uh, I think, elevating the way the competition is run from a operation standpoint, which might be part of the threat to MLS because they see now U.S. soccer can do this on their own. They see that they're actually operating the tournament, uh, doing the draw. Like The draw used to be this hidden thing that we would find out about after. Uh, they're promoting the competition. They've got the CBS thing going on. So I think that's a, uh, that's a positive, and MLS might be insecure about that. One other point, Chris. I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that this happened a week after USL sold their first had their first million-dollar-plus transfer to Europe in Josh Winder, the uh, homegrown Louisville native that Louisville City sold to Benfica. Uh, Now you're seeing young players, and I know many player agents who are thinking this way, so it's not just uh, um, it's not just uh, a, a, a thought of mine. It's, it's based on uh, some serious anecdotal evidence talking to people in the game. Uh, there are player agents who think, you know what, maybe my, if I have a 17-year-old or 18-year-old I'm trying to get to Europe, it's better to have them sign in USL and go after a year than sign in MLS and be stuck for two or three years. And then having uh, the club, in this case it would be Benfica, haggle with, with the MLS league office over a transfer and, and, and all of those implications of what happens in a single entity league. So I think, uh, th- and there's been talk about this for a decade, right? It, when I was at NASL, we talked about it. Hey, if you sign a player, if we sign a player, we can get them to Europe quicker. We did it in the case of Haji Wright, right? He came to NASL, he played a season with us, moved him on to Schalke. Uh, obviously he scored a goal now <laughs> in a World Cup for the U.S., so good player. Um, but I think the winder transfer, because of the dollar amount attached to it, is really a threat to MLS now. Not that MLS, not that the majority of, of, of good youth prospects are going to leave MLS academies and join USL academies. That's not going to happen. But there could be two, three, four, five that don't go to MLS academies or or an are currently in MLS academies and choose to leave the MLS academy, go to a USL club with the advice of their parents and an agent and think that that's a quicker path to Europe and that's transfer money and prestige that MLS loses out on. Absolutely. Yeah. And for more additional thoughts in regards to this, um, one of our writers, uh, Derek Reese, has a really good piece at worldsoccertalk.com, which is talking about who actually has the most power in US soccer. Is it Major League Soccer or is it the U.S. Soccer Federation? Because depending on how you look at it, you could argue either way. Uh, in, in addition to that, too, so that's at worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, Kartik and Daniel Feustein has uh, some great uh, content over at uh, beyondthe90.substack.com. All right, let's move on to listener mailbag. Kartik, uh, first up, we haven't had a chance, you and I, to talk about uh, Greg Berhalter's uh, reappointment. But uh, Jean-Pierre Castro says, this is probably the first time I can remember people wanting a manager out before he, he even coaches a first game. It's going to be a painful, it's going to be painful in the next three years. Look, Looking forward to World Cup 2030 with a new manager and new young players. 
Uh, Buckles follows up on that. He says, I don't understand what U.S. soccer is doing. Uh, why did they wait this long just to rehire the same guy? He's not a bad coach, but history has shown that keeping a coach for two cycles usually doesn't work. I was looking forward to maybe Vieira or maybe an Italian coach or a South American. Uh, Dave says, the U.S. men's national team manager often just needs to make easy, obvious decisions. B.J. Callahan, Callahan got the best players on the field, regardless of fitness, with uh, uh, regardless, regardless of the fit with the system. Uh, strong performances without Berhalter are glaring indictments of the decision to rehire Berhalter. I agree with Simon Evans that a foreign man- manager is not a, a panacea. It is also uh, likely irrelevant since dollars to donuts, Berhalter was de facto re- rehired as soon as the lawyers cleared him. Berhalter is their crony and USSF are what they are. USSF uh, has a long history of one step forward, two steps back. I assumed that USSF would uh, hire a well-connected mediocrity as a U.S. men's national team manager. I thought they might respect optics by hiring a Berhalter clone rather than the original. Both Berhalter signings um, or hirings distill the essence of U.S. Soccer Federation. Meanwhile, Charlie Davis's uh, halftime comments about Berhalter were unhinged. Is he suggest- suggesting that the U.S. men's national team fans should blame the U.S. women's national team and or Vlatko for the, for the uh, Greg Berhalter rehire, a low point for CBS and Charlie Davis? And finally, it has been a breath of fresh air to see uh, Anthony Hudson and B.J. Callahan make reasonable roster and lineup decisions. The June Gold Cup roster is weak, um, but U.S. men's national team are uh, prioritizing the CONCACAF Nations League and using Gold Cup group stage for development, and that is okay. Kartik, what's, uh, let's get your thoughts on, because um, I don't think we've had a chance on this podcast to get your thoughts on Greg Berhalter rehired, as well as in any of the comments that uh, these fine fellows who, who, who uh, sent in their comments uh, to us uh, made. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to unpack. I, I do think Berhalter did a reasonably good job in his first uh, his first stint. Uh, I don't think the U.S. is as good or has as, as much uh, quality as a lot of these U.S. fans make it out to be. And I don't think the U.S. job is as attractive as people think it, it, it is. And in fact, actually, most national team jobs are not. That's why you see the types of national team managers you have. You don't get the top, top club coaches with the exception now of Brazil, although it's an older Carlo Ancelotti. Um, that's 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 an obviously a very impressive hire. But Brazil, keep in mind, has been eliminated in five consecutive World Cups uh, by the first European uh, uh, side they've faced in the knockout stages. That, that's a remarkable record when you think about it. Five consecutive World Cups. So let's go get a European manager. That, that, that makes sense. Um, so I don't think necessarily the hire was wrong. I do think the process was wrong. The process was wrong in 2018. The process, uh, which I think is a phony term, uh, even though uh, um, uh, 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 Matt Crocker used it 20-something times in the press conference, which, by the way, was on a Friday afternoon. I mean, who in media has a press conference to make a major announcement on a Friday afternoon? And then who does it? Who, who uh, has that press conference and it happens in a vacuum and the guy you've hired doesn't follow up with a number of television appearances and, and print media interviews, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, this whole thing was amateurish from U.S. soccer. And that's where my problem comes in because – I don't know that Patrick Vieira was actually seriously considered. I, I hear the comments. I, I think he – I don't think uh, – I, I, I listened to the podcast with, uh, with uh, uh, Kyle and, and Simon on Monday. I, I, I tend to agree. I don't think a foreign manager would necessarily work uh, in most cases. However, uh, I think there are certain exceptions, and Vieira, because of his success in Major League Soccer – probably is one of those exceptions, right? One of those few exceptions, maybe the only exception, maybe the foreign, only foreign manager I would have seriously considered. But if he wanted the job, I think you have to kind of play that out. And then that also brings me to the case of Jesse Marsh, who um, is not represented. Uh, his, agent, his agent is not the same agent that all of these uh, 
normal people in U.S. soccer have. Uh, let me start with that because I think there's an agency piece to this. Greg Berhalter has the same agent that um, that actually the president of U.S. soccer has had uh, and has the same agent that uh, the former executive director agency worked for, Will Wilson. Um, and, of course, uh, Claudia Arena and Gio Arena have that same uh, – represented by that same agency. But that's a whole different matter. Jesse Marsh has a different agent. He has an agent that I think is, is in my opinion, better, uh, more aggressive – Jesse Marsh has, uh, irrespective of, of, of what's happened in, 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 in these particular jobs, he is managing the UEFA Champions League. He is managed in uh, the Bundesliga. He is managed in the Premier League, all within the last four years, all since the last time the U.S. job was filled. Okay? Now, when was the last time the United States had a potential managerial hire that had managed in those three competitions? And let me add on top of that, he's American. So the fact that he wasn't seriously considered, I, I, I don't believe he was seriously considered, um, is, uh, and I, I can find out more, right? I, I have, I have uh, uh, sources close to Marsh World. I, I haven't uh, engaged them yet, but I, I plan to in the next few weeks. Um, I, I think that that, to me, is a serious concern. And, and the last point I'll make about this is um, Bob Bradley was the most um, – for me, he's the best U.S. He's been the best U.S. coach, but he also was the most um, intense U.S. coach in terms of advocating for reforms and advocating for changes within U.S. soccer. A uh, couple things here: Bob Bob Bradley obviously is Jesse Marsh's mentor. I think a lot of people know that, and they also have the same agent, and it's an agent that, as I mentioned, is not uh, part of that same kind of U.S. soccer circle. So I think maybe some of the internal experience where Sunil Gulati and the powers that be pushed back against what Bob Bradley wanted, the changes he wanted within U.S. soccer, um, and uh, uh, thinking Marsh is very similar. Marsh, by the way, uh, for those who don't know, I, I, I worked on the, um, on the, um, the case we filed, uh, Miami FC filed, in, along with Stockade FC, in the uh, court for the arbitration on sports. Uh, about pro rel, Jesse Marsh gave a great quote that we used in that uh, in that court case about why the U.S. system needed to be open and how cool he thought it was in U.S. Open Cup. Uh, speaking of the conver- uh, tone of our uh, earlier conversation, how cool it was in U.S. Open Cup to go to some of these smaller places and these smaller clubs and play games in their venues. So uh, Marsh's thinking is pretty antithetical to the way uh, business is done in in U- in the U.S. So this might be why the most accomplished American coach in the last five years isn't given a serious shot at the national team job. Now, ultimately, maybe it doesn't matter. Burhalter, I think, did a good job in his first uh, four years. I, I think uh, there's a lot I don't like about him, but, you know, fair play. The U.S. got out of a group that I, I personally didn't think they'd get out of before the World Cup. Um, they qualified for the World Cup, a World Cup I wasn't sure they'd qualify for. So he did better than I thought. But um, there are all these questions about process and why other candidates that were well-qualified, uh, uh, some of which, you know, the most outstanding candidate probably on paper, uh, of which is American, is also American, were not considered. Uh, also, one last thing I better mention, Chris. Uh, overlooked in this discussion was earlier in the year, Peter Vermees was considered to be the um, – the technical director. He's a former U.S. player. He's been a longtime coach and general manager in Major League Soccer. Um, Vermees is another guy that rocks the boat. Vermees is another guy that kind of pushes the edge. There's a reason why Kansas City has been uh, as successful as they've been in MLS, and, and they've, been, they've done things a little differently. They're very, they've been run very differently by Vermees than other MLS clubs have been. Um, when the decision was made by Vermees to say, hey, I'm good, I'm not going to take the job. And BJ Crocker was hired instead. I think that was another indication U.S. soccer was doubling down on the same old, same old. And that, that, was, a, that was a moment that was largely overlooked by people. But that was, I think, right. a big, big moment also. Yeah, Matt, Matt Crocker. You, you could call him BJ Crocker if you want to. But oh, I mean, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> BJ Crocker sounds better, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, before we get into that, actually, you raised a couple of points too, which made me think of something about the U.S. Open Cup discussion that we didn't mention. Is that the U.S. Open Cup kind of puts puts the uh, the pro rel question into into the debate, right? When you see second division teams or third division teams 
uh, which is not, you I mean, technically a second tier or third tier, even though there's no pyramid. And you see them beating Major League Soccer teams and you go like, well, maybe Pro, Pro Rel would make it more exciting. Imagine if we had that. Imagine like like Jesse Marsh was saying too, like an open system where it would be more exciting, it would be more competitive. It would the cream would would rise to the top. That's fantastic. Um, going back to the um, U.S. soccer hiring, I mean, to me, I mean, the whole process that Matt Crocker kept on talking about that you you alluded to just is just, oh, it, it, I mean, so much just buzzwords, bureaucracy, just in terms of just like how the, I mean. Who created the process? What is the process? Give us the details. Who, you mean, all those things. Some of the process uh, items were mentioned on the U.S. soccer website. And some of the process, the, the variables that they used were, were the ELO ranking uh, and also the uh, win percentage. Well, the win percentage, if you look at win percentage for Greg Berhalter, everyone keeps on saying, right, the, most, uh, the highest winning percentage uh, U.S. coach in history. Well, but look! Look who they played against. They played against Concacaf teams. Wait a second. Are they comparing Burhalter's win percentage at the U.S. and Concacaf to Marsh's in the Premier League and in the Bundesliga? Yes. Oh my yes. goodness! I mean, it's, 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 I jeez. Oh, well, I, I don't know what else it, to say about that. It's crazy. Yeah, but and not even Marsh though, right? It'd be all of the all of the candidates. So they, they, they might have looked at uh, Thierry Henry as you mean coach in Montreal and assistant at Belgium, perhaps, or uh, Patrick Vieira. Uh, at Crystal Palace, etc. So, so the win percentage, though, you look at Greg Berhalter's win percentage. No wonder it was so good. They played Concacaf teams. I mean, they beat up on teams uh, from the Caribbean, um, winning sometimes. So, you, know, so you could seven. do you could was well, so actually sorry to jump in, but you can do a head to head comparison. Uh, Berhalter was coaching Columbus at the same time as Vieira was coaching New York FC, and Marsh was co- uh, co- uh, coaching the Red Bull. I'm not sure if Marsh or Vieira's percentage was higher. They were probably roughly similar, but they were both better than Berhalter in that same period. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so you look at the Concacaf teams that they played against, right? So for the, for the most part comfortable victories against minnows uh, across the Caribbean. And then you look at the games that U.S. soccer went ahead and uh, picked for Greg Berhalter to play in friendlies. Most of those friendlies were home friendlies. So you're playing on, on, you have the home field advantage. But then most of those friendlies they played against were against weaker opposition. And we, we've seen, I and mean, we've, we've talked about it many times. Clint Dempsey's mentioned it many times on CBS's coverage of um, CONCACAF Nations League is that the U.S. should be scheduling games against much tougher opposition. They should try to schedule against teams in the top 20 or top 10 uh, as far as competition against. And we look at Mexico. Uh, Mexico has been scheduling a lot of major friendlies against big teams. They're doing poorly, <laughs> uh, but but still, it's tougher opposition. It's a tougher test. So when you look at Greg Berhalter's win percentage. No wonder it was so good. I mean, in all of the games that they played that uh, were friendlies, they were, for the most part, against weaker opposition. Um, the only time I think was it was a tough opposition was Uruguay, and they tied those matches, but they, they lost against Japan. They tied Saudi Arabia 0-0, um, so on and so forth. And in those games that Greg Berhalter managed as a coach that were against uh, non-CONCACAF teams... The results were pretty pretty mixed. There were, I mean, one nil victory here, uh, a nil nil draw against Wales in a friendly. It's a one one against Wales in the World Cup. It's one nil against Iran in the World Cup. I mean, so th- those types of games, the results are not that impressive, and and the actual win percentage would have not been that impressive. So those are the things. I mean, so it it seems to me from the outside looking in is that U.S. soccer set up the process uh, to be favoring Greg Berhalter and giving him the best opportunity uh, to get the job again. Um, and, and to me, it's like, of all the candidates in the world that are, were available, was he the best person for that job? And no, absolutely not. Um, so to me, that they're comfortable with Greg Berhalter. He's a yes man. He's, I mean, for the most part, he's not controversial until he opens his mouth in, in, in a conference, a business conference. I think he was misled, in, but still, he shouldn't be doing those things and saying those things. But for the most part, he's a yes man. I mean, he's American, and it's a comfort level that U.S. soccer has with him where they're like, hey, he's one of our guys. 
Um, he's not going to rock the boat. But, he's going to play. He's going to play along. Yeah, and we and and to your point, I I don't think nationality really enters this because again, in the case of technical director, I, I think they went with BG uh, with excuse me Matt Crocker, who is uh, more likely to be a company man uh, than uh, than Peter Vermees, uh, who in an informally Vermees did withdraw and say I'm not interested, but it was my understanding after he had had conversations with U.S. Soccer and realized uh, his independence. And those of you who follow MLS know what a outspoken figure Vermese is but Vermese is so outspoken that I think now as much as we criticize MLS on this show he's become very influential in influencing some positive things in MLS positive directions technically right from a playing standpoint um uh, one other point uh, uh to, to 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 your points I I I think that there is a comfort level and a comfort zone in general and these national team jobs uh to me are not that attractive so I'm not sure the, they could have gotten a much better manager than Burhalter, but I object to the process. And the point, the biggest point about the process I want to make, the so-called process, is them consulting with players. I think this is a horrible thing to do if you're running a national team. Because the thing yeah, is, I agree. it's it's 2023. And by the way, they've done this on the women's side too. Um, I, I, I like Vlatko, uh, Androvsky. I, I, I'm hopeful for a positive World Cup this summer. He's in that job because the play, because of the players, right? And, and, and I think this was why uh, Tom Sermani got sacked 10 years ago uh, by U.S. soccer was because the players were angry. There is a fluid nature as to international football and squad selections. This isn't a club team. This isn't like, uh, let's say, Jurgen Klopp was to leave Liverpool tomorrow and the ownership goes and says to Mo Salah and Jordan Henderson, uh, these influential legends of the club, first-team players, hey, who would you like? Would you like Pep Linders to be elevated or would you like us to go out and and bring uh, Xabi Alonso back to Liverpool? I'm just throwing out a hypothetical. This isn't the same uh, situation. The... The nature of a national team is these players are part of a larger player pool. There are probably about 75 players in the U.S. player pool. The 23 players that have been selected by Greg Berhalter for the last tournament are not necessarily going to be the 23 players that are the best players in 2026 or in the 2024 Copa America. And yet you're going to many of those 23 players and asking them what they think about Greg Berhalter. Of course, because he selected them, they're going to say, yeah, he's great. Christian Pulisic and... uh, and Timmy Weir are going to say, yeah, he's great. You know, I, I, we, we'd rather have, we want him back rather than, you know, some uncertain element. Maybe uh, in the case of uh, um, some of the, uh, the U.S. players, they haven't had great experiences with the other John candidates. Brooks. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but I'm saying like in the case of the guys they asked, maybe they haven't had great experiences playing for Jesse Marsh or Patrick Vieira or whoever else was a candidate okay. or or maybe even, you know, Peter Vermees when we come. Because they might have done this with the technical director thing too, for all I know. Um, so basically, um, well, look, I think there are reasons Brooks was dropped from the national team. I actually agree with Burhalter on that. Um, but um, I think it's a terrible thing to go and talk to players uh, who, who are not necessarily going to be your 23 or even your most influential players in 2024, uh, next year Copa, and 2026 World Cup. Uh, that, and uh, again, that's nothing new for this federation. On the women's side, um, and the women have been successful, okay? I, I know this is a really passe topic I'm opening up, and maybe we're going to get a lot of mailbag about it, Chris. But uh, on the women's side, as successful as the U.S. Uh, has been, I, I'm really been discussing. For, since the Sermani sacking about the amount of the disproportionate amount of influence players have within this federation. You don't see that in Europe. You don't see that in South America. You don't see Brazilian players uh, in Argentina a little, a little more, but uh, Brazilian players or, uh, or uh, Italian players or, or German players dictating who the manager will be. In fact, I think in the case of Italy, a lot of the players were disgusted with Ventura. A lot of them didn't like Prandelli, but you know, these guys get hired there's a whole different consideration that goes on. And uh, uh, what has happened on the women's side in the U.S. now has spread to the men's side where the players are effectively uh, heavily involved in the process to, to select or keep a manager, which also yep. means they can get a manager sacked also, which is not, uh, again, this is not a club team. I, I have to just keep reinforcing that. Yeah, the player power part of it, I do not like, uh, whether it's the U.S. women's national team or U.S. men's national team, I, I think it's a, it's a wrong move. It's almost like, I mean, if you listeners, if you're working at a company and um, the higher ups, the boss, the, the executive of the company, the CEO 
is planning on getting rid of one of his you know, top employees. And then he goes to the, the, the actual, you guys, the staff, right? And says like, hey, who do you think uh, we should put in place there? Usually th- that staff is going to pick the guy that's maybe, uh, he's, not, he's likable, he's a nice guy, doesn't work us too hard, won't make us work overtime or, or weekends. The guy that's, uh, you know, just lets us uh, come in late or, or go home early or it's usually not the guy that's actually the guy that's the the enforcer who you know, I mean gets the most out of us or you know, I mean the, the guy that's the guy that's oh gosh not that guy it makes us work so hard i mean so you I mean so that's the type of thing that's like within the players the players might be thinking okay yeah berhalter yeah we were kind of like the, the training practices it was fun it was a lot of fun right we had we had a barbecue afterwards and I mean, we talked about basketball, and I mean, he didn't go. It wasn't so hard on us. And then, I mean, I mean, if if another candidate was Bielsa, that the, the players might be like, no, no, I, I don't like his coaching style. When the reality is, they might be like, oh no, I don't want to be doing three uh, sessions a day. I mean, like training hard, just like breaking my body, just to try to make it in this team. So it it what it what it fosters is complacency. It fosters complacency within the team, within the players, and unfortunately, within U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer right now is probably thinking like, hey, we're happy being the kings of CONCACAF. We want to be, yeah, we want to win the, the Nations League every every year or, or every couple of years, and we want to win the Gold Cup. And, and we're comfortable with that. That, that, that's, that that's, that's to us is great. We get to sold out stadiums, lift the trophy. Isn't it great? And to rise up above to the next level to Copa America or to the World Cup, that is really more of a something that I, I feel that they feel that they can't detain. That that's out of their control. They're playing on foreign soil. They're playing against tougher teams. Like, eh, no, I think let, let's go with let's just make sure we're kings of Concacaf, and and then everyone will be happy. And I don't think I mean, I mean to me that's now, look, absolutely look, ridiculous. I think I, th- I think the consideration here you you hit on it. It's not being kings of anything. It's the money aspect, which is they're able to uh, they're able to maximize their revenue by having all these tournaments in the U.S. Uh, they're able to, uh, to 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 cut costs in whatever way uh, they need to. And uh, you know the, the thing that's really interesting is that this uh, that uh, Matt Crocker said in the press conference on 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 uh, Friday. I, I believe it might have been our friend Simon Evans who asked a question. Um, when I say Friday, I mean last Friday, right? We're recording this on a Friday. He he said something along the lines of there were no limits on who we could interview, which meant he could inter- they could interview peop- guys who were under contract at clubs. Uh, he didn't. He he basically yep. said yeah. So we could interview anyone, uh, which I I think that there's a little bit of uh, ethical issue there, right? <laughs> Right. If you're not if you're not asking for clearances from clubs, uh, let's say hypothetically, I don't think this guy would ever take the U.S. job. So I know that the Twitter trolls like to say, "Oh, Pep Guardiola or, or, or Jose Mourinho," but let's just say they wanted to interview Jose Mourinho, who's under contract with Roma. There's a process you have to go through to to to, to talk to him. So let's say, but uh, according to Crocker, there were no restrictions on that, and there was no restrictions on budget. So what's going to be really interesting is when we uh, U.S. Soccer is a public company. It's a non-profit. I mean, not a public company. They they're a non-profit, so they have to fill. They have to file public disclosure forms. I am going to be very interested when the book of reports comes out for uh, 2023 um, to look at the salary for Greg Berhalter, as well as more importantly, the amount of money spent on this coaching search, because all of that stuff has to be disclosed, and then we'll actually have our answers. So all Crocker did, but with those evasive. Uh, hyper hyperbolic answers was uh, kick the can down the road because uh, thankfully we get public statements from them uh, that that they're required to file uh, under U.S. law and uh, we will see the truth about this. Last comment uh, from one of our listeners is Andy Sullivan. Andy says Vieira uh, did wonders at Crystal Palace. He signaled he would accept the U.S. men's national team job. It just boggle, boggles the minds. Uh, U.S. soccer wouldn't hire the best available. Then to bring back Berhalter, only a fool repeats actions that don't work, uh, expecting a different outcome. All right, listeners, uh, we want we want you to have your say. Let us know what your feedback is on any of the topics we talked about this week or any questions you may have about soccer or streaming or television, etc. Um, you, you can reach us uh, through the website, which is worldsoccertalk.com. 
uh, click on podcasts and then leave a comment in the most recent uh, uh, episode. You can go to the uh, web. I'm um, sorry, you can go to email. You can email us a question, which is web at worldsoccertalk.com. Uh, you can go ahead to facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and send us a message through there. And there's Twitter at World Soccer Talk. You can tweet us there. And then YouTube.com slash World Soccer Talk. And then last but not least, uh, through voicemail, 561-247-4625. Kartik, where can listeners uh, reach out to you, but also where can they find uh, your, some of your works and, and, and other podcasts? Yeah, KKFLA737 on Twitter. My DMs are open. And you can uh, find uh, find me also at car, uh, at beyondthe90.substack.com and obviously at worldsoccertalk.com. All right. Well, we've got a big weekend coming up. Uh, BJ Callahan, um, 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 BJ Crocker <laughs> might continue his... Uh, his sorry, video. I did that to you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding with you. Uh, it might, might be uh, continuing his... Uh, his uh, great record with the U.S. men's national team. Actually, Saturday's game against uh, Jamaica should be a really, really fun, fun game to watch uh, Saturday night in the Gold Cup. But uh, whether it's a Gold Cup or uh, any of the soccer, Major League Soccer, etc., etc., from around the world, what are you going to do, Kartik? And what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football. <laughs> <laughs>